I'll ask you to turn to Exodus 19 this morning. As you turn there, I just want to thank uh, so many in the congregation, our deacons, and so many of the precious women of this congregation as well, who so graciously and generously um, gave of their time and resources to help the crumbs. If you're going to have a house fire and you're the pastor, you would not want to predict July 4th weekend as a good time for that to happen. You'd wonder where the people would be, and yet I've watched as so many have come forward to help. And so I really am grateful. Uh, So many of the tears that Susan and I shed are often in gratitude for what God has given us here. We're so grateful. So in Exodus 19, I want to remind you uh, where we are. God has rescued his people from Egypt, and he has saved them by his grace. And he did not take them out of Egypt north to the promised land. He took them south, which would have been a little bit further than going north. But he takes them to Mount Sinai. And he takes him to Mount Sinai so that they can understand that he has forged a relationship with them. And there are stipulations, there are rules for how this relationship must function. They must know the God that they're called to serve. Uh, You would not dare marry a person that you did not know. And God refuses to wed himself to these people until they know exactly who he is. Three days earlier, God sent Moses down the mountain to consecrate the people. And he said, I'll descend on the mountain on the third day, and they will hear my voice. And when you hear a trumpet blast, come forward, but do not dare touch the mountain. And so where we pick up at verse 16 is the beginning of that third day. Exodus 19, beginning at verse 16, here is God's word. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Mount Sinai, for you have yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we draw near to your word, we have a sense of drawing near to Mount Sinai, and we recognize that we stand before an awesome, holy God, and yet you are on the mountain speaking, and so we pray that you would give your people ears that we might hear the voice and the words that you say, 
that you would grant to us the ministry of your spirit, that you would be willing to use a sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. This is becoming a little bit of a common issue for me, I'm embarrassed to say. I hope you'll bear with me as we have conversations. Somebody will say to me, hey, uh, do you know uh, Joe Smith? And my brain will start spinning. There's a mouse in there that runs on a little spinning wheel. And he turns the pages of every yearbook I've ever had and every Auburn glomerata, every large group setting I've ever been in. And as he spins on that wheel, I, I, I see him stop And I go, oh yeah, Joe Smith, yes, of course, I know him, tall, thin guy, sandy, blonde hair, he's got a beard, doesn't he? And then I watch as the person pauses, and that person awkwardly has to try to figure out how to rescue me from my own bad memory. Uh, I don't know, I think you might be confused. I'm thinking of another Joe Smith, it's a common name. The guy I'm talking about is about 5'9", he's muscular, he's dark-skinned, dark hair, clean-shaven though. And so you see what I've done is I've conjured up a conception in my own mind of a person who looks nothing like the guy we're talking about. Now I mention this, not to garner your pity, but I'll accept it if you're offering it. Now I say this because I can't help but wonder if perhaps all of us have a conception of God which does not match the image that the Bible talks about. Maybe not a physical representation. I'm talking really more about qualities of character, things that you might suppose that he would do or wouldn't do, things that you would like or not, things that he would like or not like. I believe we assign some limitations to God and his character. We assign limits to his being and his majesty and his splendor. And we assign those limitations partly based on our own finite sensibilities. But more deeply, perhaps, based on our hopes. A hope that he is more like me. A fear that he's not. In his book, Miracles, which is published in 1947, C.S. Lewis describes the problem like this. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us. Vast power which we can tap into, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching us at infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. That's quite another matter. And Lewis, you see, makes the point that I am making, which is really the shocking discovery of the passage before us. Do you have a conception of the God of Exodus 19? Our book continues to answer the question that Pharaoh asked in chapter 5. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Does your comprehension of him contain anything like this? Does your understanding of him include a God of unexcelled glory? One who makes 
people and mountains quake in his presence. Perhaps you never studied a passage like this. Perhaps you hope that this is a God of a, of a bygone era. Perhaps you hope that he is not as terrifying as he appears in this text, but he is. And so, friends, when God displays his splendor, it exposes your unworthiness. And that discovery is necessary. It's necessary if you're ever to understand the riches of mercy and the extravagant grace of the God that you may never have come to know. And so we'll examine this text in three parts this morning. First, the intention of the illustration. Secondly, the petition of the people. And then finally, the movement of Moses. We'll start with the intention of the illustration. One writer described this as the, as the most vast visual aid ever displayed in the history of man. Put your finger on verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then verse 17, at the sound of that trumpet blast, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And if that were not enough visual aid, verse 18 describes Mount Sinai which itself is wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke goes up like a chimney to heaven and the whole mountain shook violently. Bible scholars tell us that the, the sights and sounds on display here are meant to communicate the, the presence of God. Sure. I mean, of course. Isn't that obvious? Philip Ryken goes on to kind of break down the meaning of each of these sights and sounds, thunder and earthquake. He says that's a sign of God's power. The dark cloud, that's a sign of God's mystery. The, the fire, that's a sign of his holiness, his, his brightness and burning purity. The trumpet, that's a sign of his sovereignty. Trumpets always accompany the entrance of a king. And then he goes on to say, these spectacular signs display the glory of God, the sum total of his divine attributes. But why does God have to appear on Mount Sinai in this way? Well, the President of the United States enters a room to the tune, Hail to the Chief. And the graduating class enters and exits to the tune, pomp and circumstance. Why must Yahweh be introduced with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and a trumpet blast and trembling? What's the intention of the illustration? Is it simply to say God is here? God is glorious? Well, if that were the case, you would expect to see those exact same images in the book of Revelation where we are welcomed into the very throne room of heaven. But those are not the images which are there. In the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation chapter 21, you have a depiction of a scene that is equal in glory but peaceful. If Mount Sinai is terrifying, Mount Zion is beautiful, where you have images of gold and jewels and jasper and crystal. What's the intention of the illustration of Exodus 19. Revelation 21, 27 explains the difference between meeting God on earth and meeting God in the new heavens, the new earth. There it says nothing unclean will ever enter, 
nor any one who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is Yahweh always accompanied with thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, a trumpet blast? No. He's not always accompanied that way, but in the Bible, when sinners meet the Almighty God on the earth, he's always accompanied this way. I'll give you three examples, and then I'll just hazard a guess as to why. Number one, by the date of the writing, the book of Job is really the oldest book in the Bible. The Lord allowed Satan to put Job to the test, and he suffered a great deal. And then after many days of speculation among his friends, why is God doing this? I'm not worthy of all this pain. Eventually, the Lord speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, and there's the identical images to Mount Sinai. Job's response is recorded when he meets God. Job 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Example number two, Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah meets God, and what is his response? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a, among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Third example, Luke 5. Jesus calls his first disciples. He climbs into Peter's boat. He says, Peter, put the boat just a little bit out from the shore. Let me talk to those who are on the land. And then after he concludes his teaching, he says, Peter, why don't you drop the nets over here on this side of the boat? Oh, Jesus, we fished all night. There's no fish. I mean, we, we, it's a waste of time. But you say it, we'll do it. And immediately everyone else in the fishing party has to rush over to the boat because the nets are ripping with fish. And the, sink, the, the boats are drowning. And it is a simple display of the glory of Christ. And what does Peter do? The Bible says he fell down at Jesus' knees. Depart from me for, am I, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Of course, the sight's. And sounds of Mount Sinai illustrate the presence of God. But you notice, don't you, that the shock and the terror of the scene is meant to awaken the people from their denial. That my sin is not really that big a deal. I don't care who you are. Believer or unbeliever, old or young. Deep down we all delude ourselves. We all base our self-worth on the expectation or the hope or the false presumption that I'm a fairly good guy. I'm a fairly good girl comparatively. And sin always makes us blind to just how bad off we really are. Of course, unbelievers do this. They do not have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict them and show them their own sin. But you and I are also not immune from the self-deception we underestimate the extent of our indwelling sin. How would I know if that was a problem in me? Well, I might notice that I'm more bothered by the selfishness of other people than I am by my own selfishness. 
I'm more disturbed by the cruelty that I see in others than the cruelty that dwells within my own heart. Hatred? Yeah, don't direct it at me. But I might quietly direct it at you. Are you more troubled by the fact that others are not serving you or that you are not serving the Lord? The text is written in such a way that you and I are meant to feel the sights and sounds of Mount Sinai so that we are meant to join them in trembling and rightly come to the conclusion that the approaching God, the unapproachable God approaches us. And my greatest problem is my sin. Early on in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin says, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy, and this pride is innate in all of us. When God displays his splendor, it exposes your unworthiness. So that's the intention behind the illustration. Let's consider the position of the people. When we looked at verses 14 and 15, two weeks back, we saw that there was a command, Moses, go down, consecrate the people, tell them to wash their clothes. Even if they're married, tell them to refrain from the physical relations with their spouse. And all of this was meant to set the people apart. And then even after that, we come to this text and the, and the Bible seems to want to accentuate where the people are in relation to God. And so even the position of the people makes this profound point. After the trumpet blast, verse 17, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. After the images of smoke like a chimney, Moses speaking, God answering, verse 20, the Lord came down on on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. He called this man to come up. And what was his one message to the man? Go back down and warn the people not to come any closer. It's too much of a risk. You'll see this again and again in the book of Exodus. In fact, you see it throughout the whole Old Testament. God summons them to move closer to them. He beckons them to draw near, and then he says, stop. Don't come any closer. Both parties are as close as they can possibly be, but they're extremely far off. And all of this is after rigorous purification, Yahweh's stress was purify the people, consecrate the people, set them apart, and yet that's far enough. Don't come any closer. Is this because God hates them? No. God has already saved them by his own grace. These people are are his people, he's brought them to himself. You remember the language of verse 4 in this same chapter, on eagles' wings, I carried you, this sense of his love and his care for them. The position of the people makes two points. First, no human being can ever cleanse himself enough to come near to God. God beckons them to come forward and then he tells them to stop. 
because the almighty maker of heaven and earth leaves heaven and he comes to the very tip top of the mountain and he says, don't come any closer. But most of them are too scared to come closer anyway. The position of the people makes a second point. And that is that in spite of coming as close as possible, there is still a massive chasm between a a, a soiled, grumbling, complaining, unfaithful, doubting, idol-worshiping people and the unexcelled glory of the majestic, holy, infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. Unbelievers do not know this God but do you how easy it is to treat God casually to presume upon his presence upon how we come near to him how easy it is to forget that our own merits and in our own filth we stand so far away that he would say you dare not even come an inch closer and I wonder If the loss of that awareness does something to dim the beauty of the saving cross. There's an old illustration which is used in evangelism. It's called the the bridge diagram. You may have seen it somewhere along the way. Sometimes there's two cliffs pictured. There's a little stick man drawn on this cliff over here and the label man. Over here there's the word God. If you draw the illustration right, then you put underneath man various verses that describe his sin and his death, his separation. If you do the, the, the illustration right, you talk about God's holiness, his majesty, his righteousness, the fact that he is different and separate from you. And then you are meant to draw in the midst of these cliffs a cross. To build a bridge from this cliff over to this cliff. And that cross is meant to to tell you that Christ is the one who bridges the chasm. And so the lesson is visually pictured. Jesus makes it possible for sinful men to draw near to a holy God. I suspect it's been a very effective illustration for years. The challenge that we face today is that very few people have ever read, much less seen, the terror of Mount Sinai. Very few people know or believe that there is a chasm. And you don't need a bridge if you don't have a chasm. If God is a spiritual force that I can tap into or cry out to in emergencies, why would anyone come to the conclusion, I think I need Christ And churches who say we've outgrown the need for the Old Testament. Or pastors who refuse to preach it or don't know how to preach it or uh, or are unwilling to preach it. All of them are working together to tear down the foundation, which really is the whole starting point of the gospel. I titled the sermon, The God You Don't Know. Not as an indictment of you, but as an indictment of me and you. And the indictment is this. The position of the people at Mount Sinai preaches a sermon. 
You are unworthy to draw near to God. And I wonder if you think of any of your sin as kind of casual. Or if you consider your sin in ways that are flippant or maybe even funny. Perhaps pause to listen to the sermon that the people who are quaking are preaching. Stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. I would quake at the thought of my sin as an offense to God. Most of us don't really think about God that way anymore. In fact, how long has it been since you've had such a clear view of God's majesty and splendor that your own heart quaked over your sin? In our secular culture, the general presumption, even among those who don't read the Bible, is that the teachings of Jesus are very useful. It's his followers, like us, that are a bit of a problem. I like Jesus, but not his church, perhaps. Others might even presume that the Old Testament is rather severe. Jesus' words are much softer. One pastor told this story at a major secular university, a, a literature press professor assigned her students to read Matthew 5 through 7, that is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And she simply asked her students to read it and write a reflection on their thoughts about Jesus' most famous sermon. Some had heard of it, many had not. Most of them had never read it. They all hated it. Here are a few of their responses. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. The thing asked in the Sermon on the Mount is absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry and to insult someone is like murder. These are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements ever made. And they're exactly right. You see, without the dimming effects of cultural Christianity, the students naturally knew that they needed to run for cover, and that's what they're doing. They actually felt the right response to the Sermon on the Mount. This is overwhelming. In fact, that was the effect of Jesus in his day. Oh, you didn't take away Mount Sinai, you raised it. You made it higher. And so it is, friends, that Jesus doesn't take away the terror of Mount Sinai. He preaches it. And we delude ourselves as Christians to say, Jesus removes all the terror and all the holy danger of God. No, Jesus doesn't remove the terror of Mount Sinai. He first removes the calluses of the 1,400 years that were on the hearts of mankind where they softened the law into such a way that they thought, well, I guess this is manageable. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, if anyone was to read the Sermon on the Mount without 2,000 years of man-centered cover, he'd cry out to God and say, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Exodus 19 is written in such a way that you and I are meant to see the position of the people and to join them in trembling and come to the right conclusion that the unapproachable God approaches and my greatest problem is my sin. 
When God displays his splendor, it exposes your unworthiness. The intention behind the illustration, the position of the people will close with the movement of Moses. I wonder if you noticed what happened. There's a quick turnaround at the top of the mountain, verse 20. The Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain and Moses went up, verse 21. Then the Lord said, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Verse 23, Moses thinks it's unnecessary. But the Lord repeats himself again in verse 24. Go down, Moses. And what seems to Moses and us as perhaps maybe overly cautious is an expression of God's mercy. Moses and you and I would always underestimate the problem of sin. God understands the problem. And it is not just that there is some person in this group like that kid in your school class that don't touch the electric fence and he's the kid who runs out and licks his fingers and touches it. It's not just because of that. No, this is not a God to trifle with. And so God says, Moses, your role as mediator is in fact the one thing that guards these people from their own sinful stupidity. God's people get lax and they wander off from the group and they try to get a quick glance from just under the clouds. They will die. And this is strange to our ears. In one sense, terrifying. And in another sense, you recognize there's something kind of special In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses later says, Has such a thing ever happened, or was it ever heard? Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? The answer is no. How did they live? Go down, Moses. Go down, Moses. They survived the encounter. They heard the voice of God because one man stood between a holy God and a sinful people. How does a Christian, this side of the cross, understand these events? Because bluntly, I've asked you to stare for just a moment at Mount Sinai. And I've asked you to interpret the sights and the sounds. And I've asked you to consider the distance and the separation so that you might look with fresh eyes. It's the exact same God. But it is a better mediator. Friends, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you do not forever stare and tremble at Mount Sinai. Hebrews 12, 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message was to be spoken to them. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that their mediator Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even with all those up and down movements, Moses is shaking which tells us you and I must not dare approach Mount Sinai on any of our own merits. When God exposes his splendor, it reveals your own unworthiness. 
And so if you have received Christ as your Savior, then you have already stared at Mount Sinai, but you've come to Mount Zion, a different mountain. Hebrews 12, 22, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gatherings, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, Abel. It seems odd to place Abel here. You remember Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. The sons of Adam and Eve made sacrifices to God, and Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God and acceptable, and Cain's sacrifice was not. And Cain rose up, and of jealousy, and he struck down his brother. The Bible says Abel did not deserve to die. God told Cain, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Meaning, the spilled blood of your brother cries out and it demands justice. Jesus did not deserve to die either. Wicked men and women like you and me rose up and we struck him with our sin. And he died. And on Mount Zion... The spilled blood of Christ cries out a better word than justice. A better word, and it is grace. The blood of Jesus cries out on Mount Zion for grace. For Christ bore the wrath of Mount Sinai. And he has offered this grace to you. Oh, sure. When God displays his splendor, it exposes your own unworthiness, but it provides a far greater picture of the sacrifice of Christ. That sacrifice is pictured at the Lord's table, which we will come to in just a moment. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, for the privilege of staring at Mount Sinai for the privilege of seeing Mount Zion. Instill in your people a deep abiding faith that they might know that there is better blood that has been spilled. Justice is not the cry, but grace is the cry. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.